2022 has been a year filled with political ups and downs and drama seemingly from every corner in Arizona. We started the year with Governor Doug Ducey's final State of the State address. But for those who think it's going to be a quiet year on the ninth floor, you haven't been paying attention. As I enter the fourth and final quarter, I'm reminded of something my high school coach told me. Get in and get the job done. And as I stand here today, the job isn't done. We sat down with House Speaker Rusty Bowers, where he shared a familiar plea for evidence that the 2020 election was stolen. And I, and I said, also, just bring me the proof. Rudy didn't bring it. Nobody brings me the proof. They say, we've got the proof. The president says, get him the proof, Rudy, get him the proof. Nobody ever brings me the proof. Bring me the proof. We covered Ukraine, Uvalde, and Roe v. Wade, all before diving into the 2022 midterm elections. Here, but as you can imagine, uh, this is a small town. It's an elementary school. It's a horrific event. Uh, if one child was shot, let alone at least 15, as appears to be the case here. We heard from Arizona's youth, the independents, and from candidates themselves. I did circle Katie Hobbs, even though I did try to talk, uh, you know, I tried to reach out to them and say, how does she feel about open primaries, you know? Um, they don't know a lot about Carrie Lake, but, you know, it, it doesn't sound like she's for me. We sadly said goodbye to Yvonne as she embarked on her next endeavor, but welcomed the Republic's politics team as regulars that you've grown to know. Looking back, were people like McCain and former uh, Republican Senator John Kyle, Bush, others, were they too dismissive of this movement, was there anything that they could have said to have changed the trajectory of this movement? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. Welcome to The Gaggle, an Arizona politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Each week we sit down with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you on top of the state's political news. I'm your host, Ron Hansen. Today, before we break for the holidays, I'm joined in a roundtable with some familiar voices to the podcast. Let's have each of our guests introduce themselves, and I will start to my left. I'm Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover the legislature and state policy. I'm Ray Stern, and I cover the legislature and state politics. I'm Stacey Barchinger. I cover, on my business card, state politics. What that actually means is the governor's office. I'm Robert Anglin. I'm an investigative reporter, which means I do what my editor says on any given day. I'm Sasha Hapka, and I'm the county watchdog reporter. And I'm Ryan Randazzo, and I cover things for the Arizona Republic. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, everybody. Today, we're going to look back at some of the more memorable moments from 2022 or from the 2022 cycle as needed. But we'll do it in part by playing a game called Rose Thorn Bud. And this is my first time playing it. I don't know if anyone else has. So we'll, we'll see how this goes. For those listening at home, here's how it's supposed to work anyway. Each of us will have a chance to talk about something positive that happened on their beat. That's the rose. The thorn is something negative that happened. And there was a little bit of that in the last year. And the bud is something promising that they themselves are looking forward to. 
So, Stacy, let's start with you. Let's talk about the governor's race that turned out to have great national interest and epic in its finish. What stood out to you? What was most memorable from that race in the past year? Well, it's certainly hard to pick one thing in a race that went on for 18 months, but I think covering a race that brought such national attention to Arizona was really just fascinating to be a reporter and a fly on the wall. Of course, I wasn't always a fly on the wall. Sometimes we saw Carrie Lake, the Republican candidate who ultimately lost pulling the media into her campaign in a way that I had never expected would happen. But I also think was a challenge that gave us a chance to do some really good journalism. One of the things that I loved about the campaign as a relatively new Arizonan was going out around the state and following these candidates around to see how they're speaking to the people of Arizona and then also getting a chance to speak to those Arizonans myself. On election day, I will say I was going into it expecting Carrie Lake to pull out a victory based on some of the national trends that we were watching and following. Knew it would be close, but I expected her to win. And I spent two hours at a poll and talked to about eight voters in a swing district, went for Trump in 2016 and then Biden in 2020. And I kind of came away from that questioning my own guesses about how this would turn out. And ultimately, over the next six days, that proved to be true. And Katie Hobbs pulled off a shocking victory. So if you were to assign a rose out of all of this, what would be the rose moment for you from that race? I mean, I can't, I don't want to pick just one. I have a dozen. I have a bunch of roses. A bouquet. (laughs) Wow, a bouquet. (laughs) Well, I well in preparing, I wrote down my survival, but I don't think that's the tone we want to set for the podcast. No, that was one of the ones on mine, too, if I'm being honest. Less the fly on the wall and more the bug on your shoe. Ray, how about for you? You covered the legislature. We had a number of compelling races, both in the primaries and in the general election. There were a lot of personalities and a lot of questions about where the legislature was headed. We also did it for the first time under new legislative maps. So that added another element of mystery to this process. What stood out to you about what unfolded? I would say that broadly can be put into two categories, which would be bipartisanship and division. So two kind of opposite things. But just covering the legislature last year, you couldn't help but notice the division. There were some really interesting moments. One of the ones that really stand out to me is the Speaker of the House, Rusty Bowers, testifying before the House Select Committee on January 6th and then censured and vilified by other Republicans. That sort of division was, uh, you know, it's probably damaging to the Republican Party and uh, certainly a lot of speculation that it was damaging to some of the candidates in the recent election. Rusty Bowers also teamed up with Democrats for a possible anti-discrimination bill for the LGBT community. And so that was really interesting to see. Ultimately, it it didn't go through, but um, there's definitely some opportunity there. That would be, uh, I guess, a uh, bud. One of the other interesting things was the uh, Bonnie and Clyde moment. Mary Jo, thank you for uh, for mentioning that in a tweet because everyone talks about it still. But basically, this involved some consternation on the part of uh, two representatives, Jake Hoffman and Jacqueline Parker, who are sort of further to the right on the right wing scale. And they were angry that they couldn't get an election bill that they wanted to be voted on, which if it had passed, it would have ended early voting and mail-in voting and required all election ballots to be counted on one day. 
there's still a lot of people that are interested in that. And a CRT bill, which was uh, sponsored by Paul Boyer, was up for a vote. And Jake Hoffman and Jacqueline Parker were just suddenly nowhere to be found. So they couldn't vote on this CRT bill, which actually most Republicans wanted. And some people called them Bonnie and Clyde and that kind of stuck. So that was kind of funny. But also the bipartisanship is something to just to note. And we ended with a bipartisan budget. And there were a couple of bipartisan bills that were interesting and welcomed, hopefully, by the state of Arizona, represented by both Democrats and Republicans. Um, one that comes to mind is the automatic recount bill, which adds a little extra work for county workers, but hopefully will reassure people that are worried that these elections are not going the right way. So speaking of elections not going the right way, Sasha, we saw once again more drama surrounding the election administration process with Maricopa County. This is on the heels of the 2020 election that came under great national scrutiny. What happened in Maricopa County and, and how do you sort it all out in terms of roses, thorns or uh, other <laughs> artifices uh, as may be necessary? I think the better question might be between the two counties I cover, Maricopa and Pinal, what didn't happen <laughs> in those two counties? I think it's been really an incredible privilege to be able to cover the inner workings of an election like this that has such national impact. And I'm very thankful that I was able to do that. The rose really is that we had an election and we didn't see violence in that election. And I think that's a bud too in and of itself. But that doesn't mean we had a perfect election. We had an election where there were printer troubles in Maricopa County, troubles that have given rise to a whole new slew of conspiracy theories and allegations that the election was rigged, allegations that it should be redone entirely. And I think the other portion of this is that in Pinal County, we had a very different story where their primary did not go well. It went disastrously, actually. But then Pinal County had a comeback. And so, yes, this election didn't go great for Maricopa County in the general. Yes, there are elections before this that also haven't gone great for Maricopa County. But there will always be another election, and they're going to have another chance to get it right. And I think in some way they kind of have to, because people do need to have trust in their election system. Mary Jo, those two counties were not the only two that made noise in the election cycle. You documented what was happening elsewhere, notably Cochise County. Talk about what happened in some of the other counties and, and who gets thorns and are there any buds to be found? <laughs> well, in Cochise, as many listeners know, the supervisors hesitated at certifying the results of the election earlier on. They wanted to do a full hand count of every single ballot that was cast in the election. They were threatened with lawsuits. They were fighting that, eventually backed down when a, uh, some automatic recounts were triggered by election results. And then they switched to delaying a decision on whether to canvass the election results. Ultimately, they were sued. They were ordered by the court to canvass it. And that sort of encompasses the whole, I guess, rosebud and thorn thing, because the positive thing is that the courts did what you would expect them to do, which is enforce the law. So you must follow the law. The bud, the promise, I don't know, you know, positive or negative. I mean, if if the supervisors get away with this disobedience, we might see this repeated again in 2024, and not just in Cochise County, but in probably any county that's run by a Republican-dominated board. Um, and the thorn was just the the absolute 
ignorance of the law and the flouting of the law. We also had Mojave County at the other end of the state toying with the idea of delaying votes. And they got a stern talking to from their attorney and changed their minds and came in on time. Ryan, you were following some of the legal dealings in all of this as well. How did the system acquit itself in full? The lawyers, the judges, the folks who were trying to instill and uphold public confidence in the integrity of these elections. Did you get the sense that people sort of played by the rules and fell into line or are there lots of thorns to hand out for everyone? Well, I think the way the courts handled it is clearly a rose. It was positive. I mean, the judge ordered Cochise County to convene within a couple hours and to certify their election, and they did. I mean, I've never seen a court case where the judge ordered someone to do something immediately, and that happened. And even though one of those supervisors didn't participate, and that does bring to question, you know, what happens in the future, the courts upheld their end. Those guys wanted to mess around, and they were brought into line very quickly, and so were the rest of the counties. And even though they had missed their deadline, the state canvas went forward. So, you know, I I think there's a lot to, to be positive about from that. Could I just add one thing, not to dwell too much on elections, but when Sasha mentioned that it was, you know, a positive that there wasn't violence, I think it's really a sad reflection that we would actually expect there to be violence in our elections. But, you know, coming on the heels of January 6th and the behavior, especially in Maricopa County, that does seem to be uh, an expectation. Maybe this year's results will tamp that down. I'm not really hopeful. So, Robert, talking about the way the legal system processed all of this and came out of the election cycle, you were looking at the attorney general's office and how they were investigating the election integrity issues that have been previously raised. And they are certainly aware of all the issues that were unfolding in real time with the last elections. How do you think the attorney general's office emerges from this and especially the current and soon-to-be former Attorney General Mark Burnovich. Well, let's call me the thorn thrower then because the Attorney General's office is, quite frankly, a mess. They weighed in heavily when Maricopa County, and maybe rightfully, when Maricopa County had its election problems. But what they did was the person in charge of that investigation, Jennifer Wright, inserted herself in a wholly inappropriate way by all accounts. She had previously been tweeting about the election. Her job is to run the political integrity unit of the attorney general's office. But in advance of the election, she was supporting MAGA candidates. That includes Carrie Lake. She um, tweeted support of Debbie Lesko. And she was making comments on election day about how incompetent the election officials were. Jump forward a week and a half later, she announces that she's investigating the very elections and calling into question the results of the elections that she had been championing. And before that, what you saw was a total lack of anything from the actual attorney general. Mark Burnovich has been silent on the issue. Jennifer Wright put out a letter in his name saying that she was going to be demanding answers from the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and the elections officials. Burnovich is silent. Burnovich also was silent on the fake electors issue, brewing out of, you know, 2020 and the attempt by some Republicans to basically cast Arizona's vote wrongly, falsely to Donald Trump. And as Burnovich 
engaged in investigations of the election process of 2020, he didn't do anything on that very real fraud that you could just see play out in real time. So possibly a rose objectively for this Cochise County situation, even if for the people that think that the supervisor should have stuck to their guns. But if they had, if Cochise County had not uh, certified, that would have been bad for the people of Cochise County. That would have disenfranchised their votes. That would have been a major disaster, really, for Arizona and changed a whole number of results, possibly the way Republicans did not want to see it changed, too. So that ultimately, I think, objectively could be considered a good thing all the way around. Yeah, I guess when people, when county governments are deciding they're going to not certify their own results, they ought to check where their own party lies on the in the downwind of that decision. Well, I've got both a thorn to add to your pile, Robert, and also a little bit of a bud that maybe will transition us away from elections a little bit. But I mean, I think the thorn, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point it out because it's a very long and pointy and sharp one that's a bit of an elephant in the room, is that there's no sign of threats against officials and against election workers stopping in the new year. That's something that's been pretty consistent throughout this election and is going to continue to happen. Um, I actually just received records related to it. It's about 600 pages of it that I'm looking forward to going through over the holiday. And I say looking forward a little sarcastically because as a reporter, it's always good when you get records. But these records contain, I'm sure, a whole bunch of ugliness that will be very sad to read. You know, I think that government, especially our elected officials, should be criticized and they should be criticized harshly. But there's a difference between criticizing harshly and putting people in fear for their safety or that of their loved ones. On a more hopeful note, though, one thing I did learn throughout this election season is that we are all united in hating political signs. Um, No matter what your political stripes, everybody hates political signs. I wrote a story about it. um, And I also found out that laziness is also bipartisan because I got a bunch of emails after I wrote that story about candidates after the primaries who were leaving their political signs up even though they had, you know, lost their primary challenges. And I can assure you that there were lots of Democrats and Republicans both who could not take down their signs. So there's one thing we can at least all agree on. Well, and also, like, it's not just signs, right? Like the flood of political advertisements this cycle, so many and so many voters I talked to were just so over it, like a a bushel of thorns there for Arizona voters. So, Sasha, you mentioned government uh, a moment ago. I want to turn to that if we can. The legislature was busy in 2022. Ray, the thing that stands out in my mind was the voucher-style program that the governor uh, signed into law. That seems fairly important in the educational sphere. What else happened? What deserves roses? What deserves thorns? And are there buds? Well, there are buds. And I think that would be more in terms of um, what is work left to be done by the legislature. So I'll start with that. Certainly the water situation is one that that really comes to mind because we have a crisis in Arizona. Everyone pretty much agrees on that, but the legislature has not taken care of the problem. There's a lot of ideas about what should be done. There's a new billion dollar fund to examine different ways that we can fix the problem, but the legislature still has more work to do next year. So they kind of left that one. 
So it's, and it's, of course, really difficult to think of positives for legislation that passed because really anything I say, there's going to be like 20% of the people out there that are like, no, it's exactly the opposite. And certainly there are some people that believe that the Republicans accomplished a few things for their agenda this year. So if you're a Republican, um, you may see some positive in things like banning transgender people from competitive women's sports. That is an issue for some people. Other people see that as terrible. But where are some bipartisan issues that we can agree on? So how about uh, requiring veterinarians uh, to check microchips on pets that they find? So that's obviously really good. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's one of the ones that probably most people can agree on. You know, I, I guess I would just say that the fighting, the bipartisanship that did occur, it produced... Um, well, okay, so again, I, you know, I still want to sound biased on this, but th- there were over 100 election bills that were thrown up there. I think, you know, you could say some of them were bad, um, you know, or at least they're, they're, they're radical, they're, they're experimental, and it would massively change our election system. So a lot of the ones that were more radical didn't pass, and yet some bills that Democrats agreed on did pass. So we didn't fix the election integrity problem uh, from, by anybody's uh, standard, but maybe got a couple notches closer. The biggest promise I saw coming out of this legislature was the bipartisan budget. It really was bipartisan. There were a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats, but only at the last minute that came together and approved the state budget. It includes um, a billion-dollar increase permanently to the K-12 public school budget, which was a big win for the schools. More on that in a little bit. But the uh, the fact that it passed in a bipartisan manner, people are saying, you know, this is like unprecedented. Well, it's not unprecedented, but it's very rare. And I suspect given the outcome of the elections and the fact that we now have a Democrat in the governor's office, that the prospects for a bipartisan budget in 2023 are looking a lot more likely. That's a good thing if you're a fan of bipartisanship. Okay, so if there's anything that might have a bud in play somewhere, it seems like it ought to be the marijuana issue. Sorry, bad pun. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan, the marijuana uh, issue has been evolving for a number of years. You've been on top of that for us for some time. You had several really compelling stories about how this industry is functioning in Arizona. How is the legislature responding to the holes in the system and the needs of a system that really kind of uh, demands regulation and oversight so that consumers get what they think they're getting. Well, thanks for recognizing that. You know, we found marijuana that was heavily contaminated with pesticides being sold to medical patients exclusively. And the legislature did not fix that. But for the first time in my career, they tried to fix a problem that I had pointed out in my reporting. So they did introduce a bill and it was bipartisan. There were a lot of other things in the bill and a lot of other reasons that it failed, but I would expect them to bring that back because that issue has only gotten more serious since we reported on it. There are now labs in the state that are routinely pointing out that there are huge loopholes in the state law that allow contaminated marijuana to get sold to consumers, that allow companies to wildly inflate the potency that is listed on the label so that they can charge consumers more and again charge medical patients more and and so they're really not getting their medicine something that just wouldn't be tolerated in any other industry especially something people are using for medical purposes so i expect a lot of action at the capitol in the coming year on cannabis issues and 
We will see also with the new governor who she eventually puts at the Department of Health Services. She could leave the current director, but that's probably not expected. That is the person that will also have a say in how strictly that industry is regulated. So there's probably a lot of news coming on that front. I want to turn to surprises, if only because one very big surprise happened at the end of the year on one of the areas I cover, and that's Congress. We saw Senator Kirsten Sinema announce that she is ditching the Democratic Party to become an independent. This is something that has effects on the Senate operations, though the message is that we don't expect any huge changes, but it will have a lot of impact on the 2024 election cycle if she chooses to run for re-election, and as the cast of characters in the Democratic and Republican primaries sort themselves out as well. That was a really big surprise, not totally unexpected, but still pretty consequential. I want to ask the room, what stood out to you as surprising in a way that is remarkable for any reason, because it was good, bad, or really important? I don't know that I'd call it a surprise, but it's certainly saddening and shocking was at the beginning of the year, I started looking into it back, in fact, almost a year ago to the, today, um, I began looking into Alistair Adele and some problems that were emerging at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office. Those involved her failure to show up for work, her failure to take positions on legal issues, and a general kind of, to quote a source, circling of the drain at the County Attorney's Office. And as I investigated deeper into 2022, I discovered that Alistair Adele was drinking again. There was ample evidence of it. The, the county supervisors were aware there was a problem. They were aware that she wasn't showing up. And it began spiraling out of control. And around February or March, as we continued to report, the office came unhinged. And Adele insisted that she was capable of running that office as more and more problems were exposed. And Toward the end of March, I showed that the county attorney's office had basically forgotten to file charges in 180 cases. And the perpetrators in those cases, there were misdemeanor cases, but we were talking about domestic violence, drunks, some real serious crimes, trespass, some violence, and they just got a free pass. And as a consequence of that, Adele, who had continued to maintain that she could run the office even, even if she wasn't going into the office every day, finally um, was censured and was criticized by the governor who told her to get her office together. And that led to the attorney general to ask her for a report on these 180 cases. And after insisting that she would stay in office through her term, she actually announced her resignation. What would have been Adele's last day in office, she actually secretly checked into a hospital under her maiden name, and she never left. She died in the hospital a month later. That was obviously a very tragic series of events that just cascaded from the county attorney's office on a much lighter note, uh, less consequential, but still important for all of us. Ray, we saw a lot of people moving around and jockeying for new districts in the legislature and trying to find their way in a map that looked very different in some ways. What stood out to you about some of the fallout from redistricting? I, I'm thinking certainly of Wendy Rogers and Kelly Townsend and others uh, elbowing each other out. But how about for you? Well, that's the first one that comes to mind, obviously, because Kelly Townsend and Wendy Rogers are, they both kind of represent somewhat of the same thing. 
and yet they were forced together and voters had to choose. But Wendy Rogers has such a more robust election campaign machine that Kelly just wasn't able to keep up. Plus, she didn't get the Trump endorsement, which was really important for voters in that district. The Bowers and David Farnsworth situation, Bowers is suddenly running for senator because he's term limited. But he suddenly has to go up against someone. And David Farnsworth, a former lawmaker who is critical of Bowers for being more moderate, steps in to take him out, basically. So I would call that a redistricting situation. One that really surprised me was the defeat of Vince Leach, you know, a longtime lawmaker. I think he's served for at least four or five terms. He lost his Senate primary to Justine Wadsack, who sort of came out of nowhere um, in the Tucson area to defeat him. Um, which then led to a challenge from Mr. Leach that Ms. Wadsack did not live in the district. And then we went down the whole rabbit hole of where does a candidate actually live? And when all the dust settled, it was determined that she lives in the district that she has been elected to represent, and she is going to be one of our new state senators. So seeing Leach get bounced out was quite a surprise. The other surprise, I think, was in the, in my view, was the Senate leadership race, where Warren Peterson bested Senator David Gowan for the top post. He edged him out by one vote, and that included the votes of three people who aren't coming back, and they aren't going to be in the Senate that will be presided over by Warren Peterson. But they called the vote on this while elections were still, results were still hanging. If those results had been known, we might be talking about a President Gowan instead of a President Peterson. What would that have meant, Mary Jo? Peterson's more of an absolutist. Gowan's more prone to making deals and working out agreements. So I think we're going to see a more more backbone for the MAGA wing of the state Senate than you would have under Gowan. That came despite the MAGA defeats in the general election. Right, it did. Um, we just had a lot more candidates this cycle who were successful, who were running on pretty much the far end of their party. Well, speaking of far ends, I don't know if there's a bud or a rose here, but we did not see the election of Mark Fincham as Secretary of State, somebody who wanted to dismantle the election system as we know it and was a hardline conspiracy theorist who is, has turned Twitter into a daily screed of vitriol and anti-Semitism in the wake of his loss, although it was going on before he lost as well. I will broaden that. I think it's one of the things that really stands out to me about 2022 is the performance of the Trump ticket, especially in Arizona's big three races this year. We saw gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake sort of emerge as a budding national star only to fizzle on election day when she ended up losing by about 17,000 votes. It was close, but this is not the way a star is supposed to be born. We saw in the Senate race, Blake Masters, someone who was a disciple of Peter Thiel, who garnered a lot of national attention for some of his more uh, out there policy beliefs and such. And he was expected by the end of his race against Senator Mark Kelly to have a shot at picking up the one seat that Republicans really needed to be able to take control of the United States Senate. That didn't happen. And of course, Mark Fincham, who also attracted national attention and was part of a 60 Minutes segment in the fall, he also got the attention and voters were looking and didn't like what they saw. This really sort of was a surprising rejection 
across the board in an emphatic way, really, by voters all over the state. That was a surprise to me, and I think it's one of the things that will echo about 2022 for some time to come. Well, in Fincham's case, when you talk about a star, you're talking about a black hole. He lost by 120,000 votes. So he went supernova and then burned out, except he hasn't realized it yet. This might have been a sweeping defeat, but really only at the top of the ticket. Um, when you get down into the legislative races, as I mentioned earlier, you know the legislature is going to be more conservative, and actually the Democratic caucus will be more lefty than we've seen in many, many years, which shows that when th- there was a lot of attention, of course, on those big top three, top four races. And I think you can read from that that voters had had enough. But when it came down to your district, different story. Well, yeah, and the details about like, what do these people actually believe, I think goes along with what I found most surprising this year. And that's the belief in this movie, 2000 Mules, as being one of the main so-called evidences of election fraud from 2020. And I talked to a number of elected officials that when I asked them, what is your most compelling evidence that really drives you to believe that there was election fraud, many of them mentioned 2000 Mules. And this movie attracted so much attention by right-wingers, and we watched it as a team, And it was kind of like obviously missing some major evidence. The one piece of evidence that, you know, I thought would have been compelling if they would have had it is showing the same person going to the same Dropbox, dumping off things time after time. But there was absolutely no video evidence of that. And you had to believe the movie makers that they actually had the evidence that proved whatever else they said. And there's no independent evidence whatsoever. So literally the people that believe that this is evidence literally believe in a movie they forget about movie magic, I guess. Um, But that's a thing. And you you just can't believe in just a movie. But I'll just say that this got so big at one point that they had a a legislative hearing on it that was attended by elected officials from around the state. Standing room only. Standing room only. Yeah. And going off of all of that, I mean, I think one of the things that'll be most interesting to see kind of transitioning into talking about the future here is we had a bunch of people with cameras at our drop boxes here in Maricopa County over the course of this general election and the lead up to an actual election day, it'll be very interesting to see what they do with all of the film and footage that they've gathered and whether or not they can show what you're talking about, Ray, because thus far there's been no hard evidence that the elections are rigged or that there are people muling ballots on a widespread basis in the state of Arizona or really anywhere else. I also think that one of the things that'll be interesting to watch, speaking of kind of down ballot races and not necessarily top of the ticket performance by Trump Republicans, will be to see how our primaries go in 2024 and who kind of steps up to the plate to primary the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors as all of them will be up for election come 2024. They didn't just show up with cameras. They showed up with ball clavas and guns, too, to do the monitoring. But to ride on the back of your mule, I mean, the Arizona Attorney General's office brought forth a case that dovetailed with the 2,000 mules, and everybody said, there's the proof. And it turned out to be a handful of cases that in no way would have affected the outcome of the election. They did indict some people. A couple of women in yeah, Yuma? Yeah, and that, and that was interesting. It was a political case. Um, but the 2,000 mule believers kind of forget that that involved the primary election. Uh, Trump wasn't on that ticket. But boy, did they sure want to take that and run with it. And again, here was supposed to be the attorney general coming in and doing this investigation. And what we got was kind of, well, anticlimactic. 
Right. And then a follow-up that I did on that was the election fraud cases that were actually real that they were investigating in Yuma County. And the majority of those turned out to be Republican voters. Oops. I guess they grabbed the mule by the tail on that one. <laughs> I just want to jump in. I feel like as we're you know talking about these candidates that furthered election lies and conspiracies, we should talk about the state's top Republican who did not do that. And that's outgoing Governor Doug Ducey. So as we reflect on the last year, it's his last year in office. He completed eight years. He's the first governor since Bruce Babbitt to actually finish two terms. And it's definitely a complicated situation between him and the mega arm of the Republican Party. He stood up to Trump. He certified the election. He and the Republican Governors Association that he ran put $14 million behind getting Carrie Lake elected, right? So mixed signals there. But it's also true that Governor Ducey had a really good last couple of years. I will caveat that with he's a conservative governor in a purple state, so you might not like the policy wins. But he got a universal voucher program, a big win on conservative policy there, even though voters had rejected something very similar here a couple of years ago. And the good economy that he has helped create here in this state means that his flat tax from the previous year goes into effect a year early. So Arizonans will immediately next year see the impact of Governor Ducey's leadership on the state of Arizona. I will say, though, uh, as Ducey is about ready to turn off the lights and go out the door, he is not keeping to a promise that he made that he would call lawmakers back into a special session to raise the school spending limit. This is been a, a, a thorn. <laughs> this truly is a thorn if you believe in the public schools. The legislature gave a bunch of money for the K-12 system. Ducey signed that into law, but they cannot spend all that money unless they get a waiver of a constitutional spending limit. And here we are two weeks before the end of the year, and there's a lot of jockeying going on about can they make this happen. People are attaching lots of other conditions to their vote for this. If it doesn't happen, this will roll to the next governor and most likely the next legislature and in the process probably cause a lot of heartache in a lot of schools around Arizona, but only district schools. Charter schools aren't subject to this and anybody who sends their kid to a private school will still get their $7,000 voucher amount. Well, and we will be following what happens on those future battles to come on education and other fronts. Thank you all for participating today. I think we handed out a few roses, some thorns for sure, and even a few buds. So thank you all. I want to give everyone a chance to help themselves and follow these really good accounts that will keep them abreast of what's happening in Arizona politics and news. Mary Jo, I'll start with you. If people want to follow your work on Twitter, where can they find you? At Mary J. Pitzel, P-I-T-Z-L. And I can be found on at Ray Stern. I'm at S. Barchinger. That's S-B-A-R-C-H-E-N-G-E-R. I'm at Robert Anglin. That's Robert A-N-G-L-E-N. I'm at Sasha Hupka. That's at S-A-S-H-A-H-U-P-K-A. And uh, I'm at Utility Reporter. That wraps up the Year Gaggle listeners. Thank you so much for listening to us all year. Without you, this show isn't as special. We always love to hear from you. 
If you have questions about Arizona politics or want to share your own roses, thorns, and buds with us, leave us a message at 602-444-0804 or email us at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's one word all spelled out. And don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Amanda Luberto and Kaylee Monahan. You can follow them at Amanda Luberto. That's one word, L-U-B-E-R-T-O. And at Kaylee Monahan, K-A-E-L-Y-M-O-N-A-H-A-N. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you in 2023.